Uh, well, good morning. Uh, my name is Jacob Smith, and I am the college teaching director for our Anderson campus right here. And so normally, uh, week in, week out, I'm across the street hanging out with the college students. Um, but this summer, I have the opportunity to come over here with you a few times, um, and, and I'm going to be bouncing around at different campuses because that's what everyone's going to be doing this summer. Uh, so whereas I have a normal spot where I'm at week in, week out, other guys have spots where they're at week in, week out. We're all just sort of going to be in this sort of fun rotation over the summer, uh, because in doing so, what we're doing is we're creating space for our lead teaching pastors like Brian, Matt, and Blake to, to pull away and to, to rest some. I mean, they're still speaking some. Brian's actually speaking this morning at, at Creekside, uh, at our Creekside campus. But, but for the most part, we're trying to give some space and some margin to our lead teaching pastors so that they can pull away and rest, but also prepare for the upcoming season, for the upcoming fall. We're already looking three months down the road, as many of you maybe already are, because you're thinking, that's when my child goes back to school. Excellent. Like, and so you're marking down the days. You got the paper chain. You pull one off every day. Uh, but we are looking towards that season. And in doing so, we say, well, hey, what would be a fun way to take advantage of a rotation of people over the summer, and we landed on the Psalms, because the Psalms were written by a variety of people. Uh, The Psalms are presenting a variety of ideas and topics for consideration for God's people to reflect upon. But there's a unifying theme across the Psalms, whereas maybe they're covering different topics and issues and struggles. What's beautiful about the Psalms is that they're always some sort of poetic response to the revelation of God intersecting with the reality of our world. That's what the Psalms are. They're this humanistic, poetic, God-inspired response to tension, right? Because God's people, we've always struggled with tensions in our life, right? We, we feel tension between hope in the future, but fear of the present. We have tension between joy of knowing God for all of eternity, but sorrow because there's others maybe who don't, or there's, there's difficulties in the life right now. We have a tension between wanting to be a part of a community that's healthy and vibrant and yet feeling isolated. There's a tension between these things. There's a tension in our life between what God's will is in heaven and yet what's actually happening on earth. We feel this tension. And in the Psalms, we see this incredible picture of how to, in fact, Embrace that tension with an expression of praise. Because that's what the Psalms are. Literally, Psalm, it's it's a praise. It's a way to praise and worship God. Because every single time, no matter who it is writing the Psalm, they recognize there is a God who is over us, who loves us, who's in control. And there is a reason that I can praise. There is cause for me to worship the Lord, regardless of what my circumstances might look like, regardless of what tension I might be struggling with. And so this morning, as we look at Psalm 105, what we'll see is the psalmist praising God for our revealed identity as his people. He's praising God because God has told us that we are his chosen people. And he's praising the Lord because left to ourselves, if we're trying to just sort of determine our own identity, we realize that or we should realize that we struggle, right? Left, onto, uh, left to ourselves, left on our own, we will struggle to understand who we are and what we need and how we're supposed to live. It's a struggle that we all face. At St. Francis High School in La Cañada, California, there's something to be said about yeah, math teacher Jim O'Connor. Substitute back for why. The question is, what is that something? Or round it. When you think of him, does the word love come to mind? Obviously not. 
he's very uh for whatever reason none of these kids would tell me what they really think of him oh what's the word yeah none of the boys have come in here and said oh god we have hated him you know at times nobody said that i wonder why he's gonna be seeing this right oh yeah that's why (laughs) truth is mr o'connor can be a bit of a drudge you don't know what you're doing but the 70 year old vietnam vet says he's not here to entertain his students it drives me crazy when people say school should be fun i mean it's nice if it could be but you can't make school fun e to the kt times e to the c and for years okay The kids thought that's all there was to him. Until last November, when senior Pat McGoldrick learned they didn't know the half of him. Pat was in charge of a student blood drive and had just come here to Children's Hospital Los Angeles for a meeting. He says it was weird. Whenever he told someone he went to St. Francis High School, they all said, oh, you must know Jim O'Connor. Isn't he wonderful? Wonderful? What? Like, and then it is disbelief, really. It's almost like kind of finding this alter ego that he has. Inside the blood donor center, Pat found a plaque listing all the top blood donors at the hospital, including the record holder, Jim O'Connor. Then he learned something even more unbelievable, that whenever Mr. O'Connor isn't torturing kids with calculus, he's on a whole nother tangent, cuddling sick babies. Come on, you can talk to me. Three days a week for the past 20 years, Jim has volunteered here, stepping in when parents can't to hold, feed, and comfort their children. So low. Nurse Erin Schmidt says he's invaluable. They tend to calm for him. They tend to relax with him. They fall asleep with him. I just like them and relate to them somehow. Is that a smile? Jim's never been married. He has no kids of his own. But he has fallen hard for these babies. I don't want to see him alone. You can't do that. You're not a tough guy at all. I know, but don't t- don't tell my students. <laughs> Man, sometimes people who have known us for years can still struggle to understand who we are. And the reality is that we struggle ourselves to understand who we are. Right? We have expectations and desires and, and ideas for who we should be. Right? We have expectations for how we want to be a parent or how we want to be an employee or how we want to be a boss or how we want to be a brother or a sister or a son or a daughter. We have expectations and ideas and aspirations. And yet so many times what we do is we set these ideas and expectations up and then we find ourselves failing to meet them. We find ourselves failing to be the parent we want to be or the son we want to be or the the boss we want to be. We find ourselves failing to live that lifestyle that we wanted to live, to have those things that we thought we wanted to have. Suddenly we find ourselves setting up these expectations for who we are or what we need or how we should live and then failing to meet them time and time again. We make mistakes, right? We frustrate others. We frustrate ourselves. We disappoint people. We will face the same struggles and discontentments over and over and over again in our work and in our relationships. It's confusing. (laughs) It's a struggle. So how do we cope with that? How do we wrestle with that tension? How do we deal with the fact that we're not always secure in who we are? We're not always satisfied with what we have. We're not always certain of how we're supposed to live. How do the Psalms speak in to this tension, to this struggle? Psalm 105 opens up 
And it's essentially, it's David, the, the king of Israel, uh, or one of the kings of Israel, a guy named David. He wrote this psalm, and he's opening up the psalm by addressing the nation of Israel. It's kind of clear in the psalm, but the historical context is he's basically giving a state of the union to the nation of Israel. He's just been made king. He's taking the symbolic throne of the Lord called the Ark of the Covenant. He's bringing it to Jerusalem, to their capital, as kind of a sign of, hey, the Lord's back in control. We're on the right path. And so he's got this attentive audience. He has the nation of Israel gathering to celebrate, to praise the Lord, to praise David, to just be excited to be who they are, to be the nation of Israel. And so as they're gathering in the capital, David's looking out at them and he's telling them Psalm 105. He says to them, first and foremost, at the beginning of the chapter, hey, children of Abraham, God's servant, you, descendants of Jacob, God's chosen ones. He's the Lord, our God. He carries out judgment throughout the earth. He's opening up the state of the union, declaring to everyone, hey, don't forget who you are. You're God's chosen ones. And you know what? He always remembers his covenantal decree. He always remembers the promise he made to a thousand generations, the promise he made to Abraham, the promise he made by oath to Isaac. He gave it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as a lasting promise. He starts off by telling them, look, This is who you are. Before we go any further in the celebrations, before we go any further in this sort of uh, speech that I'm going to give to everyone, he says, this is where I want to start by telling you, this is who you are. You are God's people. You're God's chosen ones. He gave these promises to your ancestors, to these heroes from your history tales, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And he says, and these promises have been given to not just these men back in your past, they've been given to you. It's a lasting promise. And he's starting off on this foundational statement of who they are, because he knows that otherwise they're going to try and determine who they are on, based on other things based on other criteria. And that's our struggle. This is humanity's struggle to think of, man, who am I? What's my place in the world? And when we try to determine that on our own, what we do so often is we try to find our identity in, in the things that we uh, align with, in our alignments, in the, in the actions that we take, in the accomplishments that we can uh, attain for ourselves. In other words, we try to find our identity in what we're doing or in what we've done. That's why the first time you meet anyone, The first thing you say, my wife and I, we were at a party a few days ago, meeting just a bunch of different people. And every single time, the first words on everyone's lips are what? Oh, what do you do? Why? Because there's something within us that wants to take all of our being, all of our identity, and we want to put it into something that we do, into something that maybe we align with, meaning maybe it's that hometown that you're from. Say, yeah, I'm a Houstonian. I got the cough to prove it, right? I've, I've, I've lived that life. I've gone through that, the, that struggle. I, I'm, I'm from this area or, or I'm with this sports team, right? I'm a fan of this team or I, I'm in this sort of political party or in this political thought or, yeah, I went to that school. Whoop. I'm the proudest member of the fighting Texas Aggie, whatever that, the rest of that is. Like, that's what I am. And we find our identity in where we align. Or maybe we find our identity in the actions that we're currently taking. We say, yeah, I'm, I'm basing my identity on the relationship that I'm in. I'm, I'm so-and-so's husband. I'm so-and-so's wife. I'm so-and-so's son or daughter or father or mother or cousin or uncle or whatever. 
We find ourselves placing our identity in the relationships that we're participating in, the organizations that we join or oversee, the degrees that we chose back in school or the careers that we're in now that we're pursuing. We find ourselves placing our identity in not just where we align, but also in where we act. Or maybe we place our identity in what we can accomplish. It's in that trophy. It's in that sweet, sweet bowling trophy that we have on our mantle where we say, that's right. 185, don't you forget. Like, uh, that's, that's a big one. Like, that's, that's where we find our identity and the accomplishment. Maybe, maybe it's a trophy on our wall or maybe it's a, a number on our paycheck. It's a salary that we've attained. It's a status that we have. It's a title on our business card. It's in the accomplishments that we can show people that our children have done or our grandchildren have done. We say, oh, look, the, well, they have some of my DNA, so that's basically me. Like, I did that. <laughs> we want to boast and put our identity in these things and these accomplishments and, and these trophies or salaries or, or rings that we wear on this hand or this hand. And yet so many times what we fail to realize What God knows, what David knows, what David is saying, inspired by the Lord to God's people is, hey, these things, they're not going to last. These things, they're going to fail you. These self-determined identities, what they're going to do is they're just going to lead to more struggle and greater confusion because they're always lacking, right? That high school ring isn't quite as shiny when you go to college, Every single year, I see it every year working with students at A&M. That first week of school, there's always like that one kid that shows up in the middle of August wearing his letter jacket. And you're like, you sweet, sweet, foolish person. Like, first of all, it's August. You're going to die of heat stroke. Second of all, what are you doing? We think, man, I've got these things that I've amassed for myself, these accomplishments or these alignments, and, and they're going to carry me through forever. But they don't. Those things don't look so great. Your boss doesn't respect or appreciate or promote you based on the GPA you had in high school or in college. I talk with students, all, former students all the time who struggle. They say, man, I, I don't know. Like, I'm working and I feel like there's all this difficulty and, and they just don't quite get me and and I'm like, then I, I, but I worked so hard in college. And I made all these grades. And I say, well, like, are you like nice to people? Like, do you respect your like authority figures or respond to them? And like, well, I mean, not a lot because I'm busy, right? I got to go study or work or whatever it is. And suddenly people begin to realize, oh, wait, these things that I've done, these accomplishments that I've made, they don't always carry me forward the way I think they Will, there's always a better team. I mean, there's always a higher salary. There's always a a more fulfilling career. There's always a better status. I mean, there's always something out there that shows that what you have is lacking. And the reality is that these things that are lacking, they also just end. Whether we want them to or not, sometimes we want those things to end. Sometimes we want to leave that hometown behind. We say, yeah, see you later, Nowhereville a.k.a. Dallas, whatever, who's heard of you, you know, and we just want to go and forge our own path and make a name for ourselves. We want to leave those alignments or those actions. That's, that was high school, Jacob. Now I'm Jake, or I don't know, that'd be weird. But we, we do that. We move forward and try to make these changes. And, and sometimes we want those things to end. Other times we don't. Other times we move forward and we have that relationship that we love and appreciate and it ends. And we didn't want it to. 
but it's over. Or suddenly our bodies, our physical bodies begin to fail us and we have health complications or our loved ones have complications with their health and disease and and cancer and things like this. And, And we say, I don't want this to end. But it does. It always will. So God's speaking to his people through his king, David. And he's saying, you can't put your identity in these self-determined things because they're always lacking. They will never last. But as my people, here's what you can do. As believers, as the body of Christ, we're no longer the body of Israel, but we're the body of Christ. We're still God's chosen ones. We're the inheritors of that promise that he made to Abraham. Not, not of the land and, 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 and the, the descendants that Abraham would have. Not, we're not a part of the nation of Israel in that sense. But we, are get to, we get to be inheritors of the promise of blessing. God says there's going to be a blessing created through your lineage, through your seed. There's going to be a blessing to all the earth. And suddenly we find ourselves as inheritors of that Blessing, because that blessing was created by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of his life, because of his death, because of his resurrection, suddenly we are able to inherit the promises that God made. We are suddenly able to find ourselves in relationship as his chosen people. And he says, that's who you are. He says, that's it. That's your identity. He says, that's something that no one can take away from you. Heights, depths, angels, demons, kings, power. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hand once you're there. Once you've been chosen. Once you've been pulled out of death and destruction and brought into life as a son or a daughter of the Lord Most High. Nothing's going to change that. He says, that's who you are. That's who you need to see yourself as. That's the identity you need to accept. That's the promise that you've inherited, that you have a father who loves you, that you have a spirit who's been given to guide you, and you have a savior who's coming back to bring you home one day. He says, that's who you are. And that's a promise that you can trust. That's a promise that will last. That is something where your alignments and your actions, your accomplishments, they're going to fade away. He says, my assurances are eternal says, that's what you need to know. That's where you need to start. And so you need to ask yourself, we need to ask ourselves, are we one of God's people? Is that something that you believe in? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you personally trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Or is it just a faith that you've been around a long time or that your parents had or that your friend has? Is this something that you've owned, that you've grasped, that you cling to? Is this something that you say, yeah, I want into that. I want to be a part of that family. And if so, are you continuing to trust Jesus Christ? Are you continuing to trust God's promises? Day to day, are you believing what he says to be true because it's hard. I mean, it is hard to trust some of the promises that God made. Some of the things that he tells it is hard to trust that faith is not easy. It is a challenge. It will always be challenging. But God calls us to it. He says, man, I want you to trust me. 
And I'm going to prove myself time and time again to try to help you in the church. I'm going to send my spirit to guide you and convict you and, and strengthen you where you're weak. He says, but ultimately, you've got to choose to trust me. And that is hard, especially when the Lord says, hey, you know what? I'm going to, be, I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to make sure that you are provided for and that you're protected. That is a hard thing to believe. That is something that the nation of Israel struggled with. That's why David, as soon as he establishes, hey, this is who you are, then he says, hey, and look, this is what you need. Let me assure you, let me tell you what God says about what you need. He says, when the nation of Israel, the historic Israel, when they were few in number, just a very few and resident aliens within it, they wandered from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another, and he let no one oppress them. He disciplined kings for their sake, saying, do not touch my chosen ones. Do not harm my prophets. David's reminding the Israelites, hey, you belong to God's family. And then he turns their attention to God's faithfulness. He says, you can trust that he's going to protect you. That he's going to provide you with the protection that you need. In other words, we so often find ourselves worried that, that other people need to get what they deserve. Right? We go through a lot of struggle. We think and put in a lot of energy into making sure like that person gets what they deserve. Because they did something wrong and we want to see justice. We want to see discipline. And David's training the nation of Israel says, hey, I, I get it. But recognize God has always been the protector. When his people were just, want, they were nomads wandering with no place to call home. He disciplined kings for their sake. No one could stand against his chosen people. Why? Because God is the ultimate protector. He says, and I promise that I'm going to protect you. But we still just struggle with that. Hi, Margaret. <laughs> beep, beep. Yep, a car says beep, beep. Beep, beep. Beep, beep. No, no, Margaret. These are my stickers. Dan Dan stickers. <laughs> Margaret wants my stickers. <laughs> No, Margaret, no. These are my stickers. They're not for you. No. Hey, hey, hey. What's going on? It's all right, baby Margaret. Tell Margaret she can't have my stickers. Can you feel the tension in the air? Do you feel the high stakes drama of Daniel Tiger? This is the world that I live in daily. And I'll tell you. Things get tense. It gets rough. And we see this inherent need. I, I see this in my daughter. My daughter needs to learn. My two and a half year old daughter needs to learn at that age, at two and a half. She needs to learn. Hey, I'm going to take care of you. I promise your little baby brother who's four months old, he's going to like kick over your toy or he's going to like push your puzzle the way you don't want to be pushed. I promise I will step in. I, you do not know. You don't need to like drag him outside and put them in timeout. I promise you don't need to do that. I will take care of this. I will be your protector. I will make sure that there is proper justice in your world. But man, she struggles to see that. She struggles to believe that. We struggle and fight to secure the reprimand or the judgment or the punishment or the revenge that we feel other people deserve. But the sad truth is it's never enough. It's never enough. Even when we see people brought to justice, there's still an ache. There's still a hurt. There's still a pain. And I'll tell you, people will promise you, if, if you've walked that path of wanting to seek out your own kind of 
vigilante justice or judgment or you, someone hurts you and so you waited six months and then you hurt them right back. You, you found just the right time to get in right in and just stab them right where it hurts. With those of us that have walked that path, we know that the pain doesn't go away. That nothing is, is helped. If anything, there's just more hurt. There's more problem and complication when we take that into our own hands. God says, you don't need to be the ultimate judge, jury, and executioner. He says, trust me, I'm going to be the judge. I'm going to bring the justice, and it's going to be in my perfect timing. But there's still something in us that says, no, I, I want people to get what they deserve. And I think part of that is because it's an outworking of our desire to make sure that we get what we deserve. Right? We want to make sure that other people kind of get what they deserve for the things that they do that are wrong. And we want to make sure that, hey, I want to get what I deserve, the things that I need for survival. I want to make sure that I'm providing for myself the, the elements that I need in this life. And David looks at the nation of Israel and he says, hey, I recognize this is a struggle for everyone. And so he brings them back again to historic Israel. He says, when they were wandering, God spread out a cloud for a cover. He provided shelter for them. He provided a fire to light up the night so they wouldn't stumble in the darkness. God provided food. They asked for food. And so he sent quails. He satisfied them with food from the sky. Not only the quails, but he would send manna. He would send bread from heaven. It would fall to the earth every single day. And they would always have just enough. They would always have exactly what they needed for that day as they were journeying through wasteland. And God opened up a rock and water flowed out. A river ran through dry regions. Yes, he remembered the sacred promise that he made to Abraham, his servant. His servant. Yes, he is trustworthy. Yes, he will provide. Yes, he promises that he's going to give you what you need and you can trust in that promise. And yet so many times we struggle with that. I struggle with that. I struggle to recognize, yeah, God's going to give me what I need. My daughter, Charlotte, is two and a half. She's wonderful. And she's taken to a game called Jump World. Uh, in case you don't know, there's a trampoline park in our town uh, called Jump World, where it's just all these trampolines. You jump on them. Okay? It's, a, it's amazing. Uh, and so she has decided, what if I take the joy of Jump World to our home? And so she was playing this uh, with my wife, where she was setting up blankets and pillows, and she was jumping uh, in this Jump World uh, with my wife. And she's trying to have a good time. And then she fell and turned very philosophical, I guess. I don't know. This was a strange moment of stillness. Uh, but immediately after this, right? So immediately after this game is over, as, as, as this moment passes, uh, eventually it's time to move on in, in life, right? Eventually, like, we need to do things or eat food or whatever. And so, Charlotte, if you're taking things away from her, if you're taking away a toy or an activity, she has learned this new pushback. She's learned this new defense mechanism. When you are trying to take the thing away, she'll say, I need that. I need, need that. I'm like, well, no, no, you don't. Like, this is a, a bat, like, or whatever. Or this, you'll hurt someone with this. Or this is a, a truck toy. Like, you don't need this. But she's, I need that. I need that. Or she sees, like, candy or something. She's like, I need that. Need that. Need that. No, Charlotte, I pro- you don't. You want it. You need that. Need that. And if we deny her, if I say, no, Charlotte, I'm sorry. Like, yeah, you can't have this right now. Like, we got to take this away. Or we, that's, that would, that is way too much sugar. Or that's, that's not for you. Uh, that is an adult thing or beverage. And so like she will reach for these things in the grocery store, in the gas station. She says, I need that. I need that. We're like, no, 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 no. Uh, no one needs that. Uh, but she, 
insists upon it. And when we say no, she has learned this other trick where then she just, she crosses her arms and she turns away. And she goes, need that. Just like, just need that. And then head back. And we have to explain to her, Charlotte, I'm sorry, you, you don't. She never uses it for like oxygen or like shelter. Like she never says need that for those things. It's always these superfluous kind of icings on the cake. And yet when I see her do this, as I watch her and try to engage with her and she's like, no, Charlotte, I'm going to explain this to you for the 50th time. I realize, oh my goodness, you tiny little mirror. I'm now seeing my life. I'm seeing myself where I'm walking through life and, and there's things that I'm just so certain that I need it. I, I need that recognition. I need people to, to, to like me in this way or to, to respect me in that way. I, I need my relationship with my wife to look this way or for my kids to behave this way. I need that GPA or I need that salary. Or I need this lifestyle. I need that car. I need that boat. And suddenly we find ourselves so often walking through life looking and pointing at the things of this world and saying, need that, need that. Whoa, need that. Boat, come on, need that, summer. And yet, so many times, the Lord tries to pull us aside and say, hey, look, man, buddy, listen, I love you. And I'm gonna give you what you need. I promise I'm gonna give you what you need. And you don't need that. And we just get upset. We turn our back and we become distraught and we don't trust God. We say, you're not providing for me. You're distant from me. You're saying, no, how could you? How could you let that happen? How could you let this thing slip through my grasp? How could you not provide that salary that I want? How could you let that person that I love get sick? How could you? Because I need that. God's looked at us time and time again. Jesus looked at his disciples and said, listen, Your father knows what you need and he's going to give it to you. He will. He's going to provide your needs. You don't need to worry about it. But we do. We do. Which is why David takes the nation of Israel back. He shows them this wonderfully practical way to remember the Lord's provision, to remember the Lord's protection that they've already seen. He says, hey, you're struggling to to believe in the Lord's promises today. Well, look at the promises he's already fulfilled. Look to the past. Look to see what he's already accomplished. Let that strengthen your trust and your resolve to, to, to rest in the knowledge that God knows what you need, that he's promised to give you what you need. I mean, so often left to our own devices, we want to create a society where everyone receives what they deserve. But when we look in scripture, what we see is that humanity as a whole deserves death. That's it. We deserve separation from the God of the universe for all of eternity. Why? Because we sinned. Because we fell short of his glory. We fell short of his perfection. So all we deserve is death and destruction. Thankfully, we don't live based on what we deserve. Thankfully, we live by grace. Thankfully, we live because of what Jesus did, because of what he's done, because of the alignment that he chose, because of the actions that he took, because of the accomplishments that he brought for himself, because Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live and die and rise again. Suddenly, I have an opportunity to live not by merit, but by grace. There's unmerited favor that is given to me through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's how I live. That's who I am. That's what I need. 
So do you doubt that? Do you still struggle with that? Do you struggle to truly believe that God's going to provide what you need? Do you doubt his provision? Do you doubt his protection? Do you doubt his grace? Because David's looking at the nation of Israel and he says, you don't need to struggle there. He says, I've I've told you, we've we've seen that God has given you an identity, that God will give you what you need. He says, where you need to struggle is then how now shall I live in light of those things? And again, we're not the nation of Israel one for one, but we are God's chosen people and we have been given an identity as his sons and daughters and we have been given what we need through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so God's looking at us and he's saying, how now shall you live? Are you struggling with this? Are you done struggling with the identity and the needs of what you think you need? He says, and are you ready to struggle with how you're going to live? How are you going to live in light of those things? How are you going to live in light of the fact that Jesus Christ bought your identity, that he gives you daily what you need so that you can go forward and be his representatives and be his people, be his chosen missionaries and ambassadors to the world at large. He says, are you ready to live in that world? Are you ready to live in that struggle? Because when David's looking at the nation of Israel, the calling is the same. It's always been the same for God's chosen people. He says, when God led his people out of bondage, out of slavery, they rejoiced. His chosen ones, they shouted for joy. And he handed his people, he handed his chosen ones, the nation of Israel, the territory of nations over to them. And they took possession of what other peoples had produced. God had been work at work for generations, preparing the promised land for them. He had allowed evil nations to live in this land, to build cities, to plant crops, to build an infrastructure that, na- that Israel could just step in and take over. God had a plan and he brought it to fruition. He put them in the land and says, they get there. He says, this is the point. This is the purpose. It's so you might keep my commands, obey his laws, praise the Lord. David looks at the nation of Israel and says, this is our calling. This is how we live. We keep his commands. We obey his laws. We praise the Lord. This is who we are. This is what we're called to. This is how we live. We are a people who serve and worship the God of the universe. He says, this is all of what our lives should point towards. To worship and to serve. To worship and serve the God who saved us. And yet so often I find myself, we find ourselves trying to stray from this trajectory. We read these words, I see these commands and I say, yeah, yeah, that's great, that's great. And then I just sort of move on. And I find my own purposes and my own kind of missions in life, my own trajectory. And when we do that, it's always going to fail us. It's always going to create more struggle. Because as we are trying to sort of listen to our heart, right? Maybe times we say, you know, I'm going to chart my trajectory based on where my heart's at. I want to be true to myself. I want to just follow my heart. The reality is that our hearts are unreliable. Our passions and desires, they, they change. They're constantly changing and they're consistently wrong. You look back on your life. You look at your eight-year-old self or your 18-year-old self or your 28-year-old self. And you say, man, I chose really strange things to wear. My fashion decisions were poor, right? Not, not that great. Maybe, you know, glasses and shirt, cool. Pants, maybe. Hat, come on. Then we just, we, we look back and we say, come on, there's, there's changes that, that needed to be made in what I desired in life and where my passions were leading me. We can look back and we say, man, 
my four-year-old heart really desired this job or had these dreams. Man, so sweet, but so dumb. So, so dumb, past Jacob. I remember when I was six, I was convinced, maybe even older, I was convinced that I could just live in my parents' house forever. Right? Why not? They were nice people. There was always food. They would sometimes give me Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle toys. Awesome. Why would I ever leave? And I would tell them that. I would say, hey, I'm going to just live with you guys forever. And my mom would be like, Jacob, well, like, what about, what if you get married? Like, what if you have your wife? I'm like, she can live here too. I don't understand. She'll live in that room. I'll live in this room. It'll be great. Or bunk beds. We'll get that. Like, it'll be so fun. We'll all just live here together. And I was so convinced. I was so certain that is what I want. That is what I desire. It's not anymore. Don't worry. I promise. But man, we, we look back at ourselves. We say, man, some of those desires and those passions, they, were, they steered me in a really strange direction. I, I don't want to follow after eight-year-old me's desires. I, I don't really want to still date that person that I was crushing on in seventh grade. Right? Oh, my goodness. What if you wound up with that seventh grade crush? How many, how many of us are still with our seventh grade crush? Any of us? Yeah, see? There was one at the 915 and they ruined everything. Uh, my whole example. But <laughs> you guys stuck to it. Good for you. Uh, you found love later in life. Uh, the reality is that our hearts and our passions and our desires, they're always shifting and they're not reliable And so God says, look, you're going to make decisions in this world. You're going to make decisions about who you date and who you marry. And you're going to make decisions about where you work and how you raise your kids and and how you conduct yourselves in those relationships. Yeah, you're going to make meaningful decisions in those arenas. Absolutely. He says, but I'm going to give you a point on the horizon. I'm going to give you a shining light, this beacon right out here. And you're going to move towards this. Every other decision you're making, you're moving towards this point on the horizon of loving the Lord your God with everything you've got. Of loving the people around you that he's placed around you with a purpose. Of taking his good news of Jesus Christ and bringing it to all the earth. That's it. We worship and we serve. We follow the great commandment and we follow the great commission. To love the Lord, to love these people, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's why we're here, to worship and to serve. So where are you worshiping? Are you proclaiming the name of God in every arena, from every stage you have? You might not be on this stage, but you've got a stage at your workplace, in your home, at your school, in your organizations, in your relationships with your family. Are you proclaiming the name of the Lord in those arenas, in those environments, on those stages? Are you worshiping the Lord? Are you worshiping other things? Are you praising the gifts that he's given you? Or are you praising, giving your thought and time and energy and appreciation to the giver of those gifts? Where are you serving? Do you hear us talk about things like Grace for the City, creating block parties, coming even just to our block party on Thursday night, uh, being a part of the service opportunities around our community? Do you hear about those opportunities and think, man, that is a really cool thing for other people to do? Good for them. Or are you a part of it? Do you find opportunity to get engaged, to become a servant of the Lord Most High? To fulfill his calling that he's given to his chosen people across all time. To worship, 
to serve. Are you a part of that? Are you living out that life in light of who you are, in light of what he's given you? Are you living a life that reflects that truth? This morning we're taking communion. And we're doing this because it's an incredibly beautiful way to observe what God has done. It's a beautiful reminder to just come together as believers and say, yeah, Jesus Christ made all of this possible. Jesus Christ lived so that I might live. He died so that I don't have to die. He died so that death is no longer my end. Jesus Christ accomplished what I could not accomplish. He acted in ways that I could not act. He aligned himself in ways that I could never, ever align because of my sinfulness and my brokenness. So I'm going to take communion. I'm going to observe the fact that his body was broken. I'm going to observe the fact that his blood was spilled all for my sake. And what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians is that when we do these things, we are proclaiming his life and his death. We are proclaiming his resurrection. We are proclaiming his works. We are glorifying him to the world around us. That's what communion is. So as we begin to prepare to take communion, I would encourage us all to just take a moment and pray to the Lord, to be silent, to to speak to him and say, God, show me, where am I struggling? Lord, where am I struggling to, to accept who I am in my identity? God, where am I struggling to accept what I need in this world, trusting in your promises to provide and protect? God, where am I struggling to live a life that aligns with what you call me to do? Ask the Lord to convict you of where is that and ask the Lord to give his spirit as a strength where you're weak, as motivation where you're apathetic. Ask the Lord to use his spirit to sanctify you, to turn you more and more into the image of Christ in those areas where we're failing because there's always hope. So let's pray. God, we thank you that you've given us an opportunity to take communion or to observe what Christ has done. Lord, as we begin to observe this thing as we begin to see what Christ has done, as we remember his accomplishments, Lord, let us take this moment to just reflect on what exactly he did. So if you would take this moment right now, pray to the Lord, say, God, show me. Reassure me of who I am, of what I need and how I live. God, show me those things right now. After Jesus had given thanks, he broke the bread. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. So do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me pray. Lord God, We want to be people who proclaim who you are and what you've done. And Lord, we want to be a people who believe and accept who we are and what we are called to do. So God, let us leave this place as your children who are fired up to be your children, to be your ambassadors, to be your spokespeople, to be your light and your salt in a world that is dark So God, let us be a people who are quick to share the gospel, who are quick to love those who are unlovable, who are quick to extend the same grace that we've received through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray these things in your will. Amen. All right, we love you guys. We'll see you in a week.